Thank you for joining us for this episode of Turf Dudes brought to you by Heralds. This is your host, Jack Harold III. Our Turf Dudes are reaching out to industry leaders and game changers to discuss what they're seeing out there. If you have a topic suggestion or know of a Turf Dude with innovative work in the field we should feature, please let us know at turfdudes at heralds.com. Today's episode is brought to you by Dr. Raymond Snyder as he discusses performance factors of various fertilizers with Dr. Beth Gertal of Auburn University. All right, and well, thanks for tuning into this Turf Dudes podcast. I'm here with Dr. Gertal at Auburn University, and we're going to have a conversation about fertilizers, form and function. We're going to talk a little bit about uh, slow-release fertilizer, organic fertilizer, controlled-release fertilizer, uh, their uses, where they fit, uh, what their roles are in our in our turf industry, and how we can utilize their strengths to help improve overall turf performance and also reduce any potential negative impacts on the environment. And so, Dr. Gertal, thanks for uh, joining us on this podcast. We appreciate it. We know you're very busy and have a lot going on. So to have you with us is really special. Well, it's great to do it. Thanks for asking. Well, let's go ahead and let's let's talk a little bit about fertilizers, form and function. And, you know, just give us your overall thoughts and walk us through some of the basic definitions and and the different technologies, Dr. Gertal. So the first thing is to be a fertilizer it has to have a guaranteed analysis. That is a state-by-state law or process, and so it's gonna tell you two things. It's gonna tell you what's in the bag and the percentage of nutrients and where they came from. So if you're shopping around, let's say, for an organic source, it's gonna tell you, oh, that nitrogen came from chicken litter or something like that. And then we're gonna separate those fertilizers into sort of different groupings. And so you have soluble, which are going to cause your turf to green up and respond very, very quickly. And then you have slow release. So you kind of have those two overarching, soluble or slow release. Slow release releases the nutrients over a longer period of time, maybe four to five weeks. Um, There are some companies that are working with materials that release that nitrogen, usually nitrogen, over a year. So different longevities depending on the technology and the the two main categories then would be the soluble and the slow and release categories, you say. And you know, you're going to reach your soluble fertilizers when you need turf green up right away. You need that turf to heal and grow right away and you want to produce a response. So perhaps you're managing a soccer pitch that has had a lot of traffic, it's the middle of summer and you need some turf to recover, those are when you reach for the soluble sources. Of course, you need to be careful because if you're working with a client that over applies the material, somebody that maybe isn't a trained turf grass professional, then you can get into some environmental impacts. And of course, in some states or regions, there are now blackout periods where the use of soluble materials is not allowed. So you have to be aware of that. So some of the upside then to the soluble fertilizers immediate response, mm-hmm. rapid turf response, yep. some of the downside potentially, you got to be careful about burn, turf right. burn. Right, burn, environmental issues, and on the upside as well, often they're a little bit lower price point too. Right. Yeah. So then we look at slow release, and slow release have a lot of benefits. They're, they tend to be very environmentally safe. Um, as mentioned, they, they have reductions in the possibility to damage or burn the turf. Um, we've done some work that showed 
you can apply a slow release material at half the rate of a soluble and keep about the same color and quality and greatly reduce clipping yield, which means you're not sending your folks back in to mow as often. So that's a great thing. And we're going to take those slow release sources and we're going to separate them into really um, two big areas. And they're either chemically slow release or they're physically slow release. Chemically slow release means there's been a reaction when they were manufactured. And so their slow release, usually it's what we call the methylene urea products. And so you take urea and you react it with formaldehyde and the nitrogen then comes out over a period of time because of that manufacturing process. And so within that reacted type of product, are there different uh, longevities of of release even within a reacted type of product because often you'll hear about hot water and soluble yeah. cold water and you know right. can, can and, you can right you... and the answer is right and hot water and soluble and cold water and soluble are what you will often well you will find them on your label on the fertilizer guaranteed analysis and yes they're widely differing so you sometimes if you're talking again to a sales rep or somebody those they may say oh this is a short chain methylene urea or urea formaldehyde and this is a long chain product some of some older people may remember one called nitroform and I would go oh yeah that's a long chain methylene urea so what do I mean the longer the chain the slower the release so those products a long chain they may take 16 to 20 weeks before you see all the nitrogen come out short chain may go six to seven weeks and in fact you can buy short chain ones which are actually liquids so there you will see um, it's, it'll say, oh, it's a slow-release liquid, and you're like, what? It's usually what's called a trizone, which is kind of a circular methylene urea, perfectly lovely products that release the nitrogen over maybe six to seven weeks. And then uh, what about the re relative to physically slow release? Can ah, you describe some of those sure. technologies? Okay, so those were chemically slow release. Oh, and one thing I didn't mention, kind of trivia but also important, these are really old relatively, pro you know, most of these were developed in the 1950s, these, these, and so now we're kind of just adjusting. Um, then we go into slow release products that are physically coated. So in your mind, think about a ping pong ball, right? And the ping pong ball is often your urea prill, and now you're going to coat it. In the first iteration, they would put them in wax. You would coat them with wax, or you would coat them with something like that. And so if the ping pong ball was your urea prill. Now it's been protected. And what makes it slow release is that wax or coating has to be worked away or eaten by microbial activity or dissolved by water and the nitrogen meters out over time. Now, of course, we've moved from wax to polymer coatings to very high end, brand new in the last couple of years by some companies, different polymer coatings. So there's, there's several different major polymer coatings on the market. Uh, it used to be you had to coat perfectly round prills, which is why it was almost always polymer-coated urea. Now some of the new technologies, uh, just last week I was looking at a polymer-coated potassium chloride, for example. You right. polymer-coated potassium sulfate. And again, these are a 
physical coating. So think about your ping pong ball and now you're wrapping a layer of saran wrap around it. And so it's a function of the thickness of the coating, the water solubility, lots of different things can affect the nitrogen release or the nutrient release over time because now we have coated potassium, we have coated phosphorus, all different kinds of physically slow release fertilizer sources. And as it related to some of the original sulfur coated urea products mm -hmm. and how they released we somewhat depended upon imperfections in the coatings of all the prills because you don't want them to be perfectly coated. Otherwise, they would all release on the exact same yeah, day. Yeah, that's a great point. And it's funny because like in turf, you do. So when, so when I say, oh, it's 120 day slow release material, what does that mean? That means over 120 days, 80% of your nitrogen will be released. And this is a really solid point because we're like doing some work with rice, which is completely unrelated to turf. But the rice guys will say to me, I want it to sit there and I don't want any nitrogen to come out for 45 days. And then I want a comprehensive failure and all the nitrogen to be available. You know, that's a really different kind of engineering than what we want for turf, which is a very slow release over a period Steady, of time. Steady, predictable, week right. to week to week and type of know, release. They yeah. are completely shown to do that. Um, environmentally, these polymer coated materials are beautiful for reducing leaching, reducing loss of your nutrient to the environment. Um, any of you that work around pristine water sources or in areas where water testing is an issue, these use of these slow release sources really afford you um, both a better agronomic program and a way to communicate what you're doing to the people around that question your environmental practices. There's lots of data from lots of people that show reduced nitrogen loss and leachate, which is the downward movement, um, to the environment when we use slow-release sources. And in more and more, the some of these municipalities are, are mandating their use, Absolutely. If, I'm, if I'm not to be no, mistaken you're correct. there. You're, you're starting to see, and of course, the turfgrass scientists in Florida are the experts in that area and have a great deal of data to really show the benefits of including the slow-release materials. So, um, I. I mean, yeah, they'll have a little higher price point, but sometimes that's no longer a part of the argument when you're having to be more environmentally sensitive. So chemical slow release, physically slow release, and then you've got what we call stabilized. So these are, it's urea to which we've added a urease inhibitor or a nitrification inhibitor. And often both of those things are added. So. That, that's different though then, right? Stabilizing is different than slowing right, the release. Right. And so when we talk about slow release fertilizers or controlled release, and there's a little bit of argument right now as to if those terms are synonymous, we don't tend to put stabilized fertilizers in that grouping. We use stabilized materials. Let's say you have to surface apply urea you have poor or no irrigation, and you want to literally stabilize it so it doesn't volatilize to the atmosphere, you add the inhibitor. And that gives you five to 14 extra days of protection until you get rainfall or it incorporates. So just because you apply a stabilized product doesn't necessarily mean it's 100% uh, protected from rainfall events. It's it's still in an unprotected form in terms of physical protection. Exactly right. It's it's you're getting so so the first thing is ammonia volatilization and that's caused by urease and so 
the common material is a thing called NBPT, and it stops that. So you think about it, if you've ever been around a chicken house or anywhere and you walk in, you're like, whoa, you smell that ammonia. That's the volatilization. So if you take urea, and our, we have lots of data to support this, if you take urea and you put it on the surface of turf grass and you do not irrigate it, you don't get a rainfall, and you do not incorporate it, um, and it's granular, you've put it out granular, you could potentially lose 20% of that nitrogen to the atmosphere volatile, volatilized is urea gas. Right out of the gate, 20% right gate. loss yeah. and now, reduced efficacy. Right. How do we stop that? Well, you use inhibitor, you incorporate it with maybe a quarter inch of irrigation. That's what our data supports. Any less and you can still have volatility. Uh, you use sources that don't volatilize, like potentially ammonium sulfate, because it's urea that does this. Urea, or if you're using UAN in a foliar or a liquid program, you can look at foliar programs. The research shows if you use foliar, it doesn't volatilize. So you have these tools, and the inhibitors are one of them. Excellent. Um, res responses in terms of their characteristics between soluble and controlled release fertilizers. You've done a lot of work with uh, with soluble and controlled release fertilizer. Uh, how, how would you gauge their strengths in terms of turf response and longevity? And are we making a binary decision here or do we need to use them together? No, that's a great point. You need to use them together. In fact, I have a classic slide that shows hybrid Bermuda grass color. And so, you know, we use like a, <clears throat> I think it was about a, <clears throat> excuse me, about an 80-day polymer coat product. Well, the first three weeks, if all you had done was put that out, your clients are going to be calling you going, you didn't do anything. Well, yeah, because it takes three weeks until it starts to release the nitrogen. And so you pair that with a soluble source up front, and you really get kind of a nice 10 to 12 week color response. Yeah, and, and that's generally our strategy. Mm -hmm. If we're looking at intervals of 10 to 12 weeks, it generally takes our polyon source about seven to 10 days to really get going. Right. Because it's a little thinner coated. It's just not right. like these highly extended right. products that we also have as offerings. But what we like to do is to include a soluble source, whether it be urea or ammonium mm -hmm. sulfate or something like that to provide us with that upfront response and then allow the controlled release to take us to the finish line. Right. And again, if you're working with a client that that does not have a lot of ready irrigation, they're concerned about that urea volatility, they can use that ammonium sulfate upfront because we it will not volatilize unless it's in a really high pH soil. Mm -hmm. So like right. the guys in the western US, but but where I sit in Auburn, Alabama, I'm okay with ammonium sulfate with limited volatility. Yep. And then you put a slow release product like a polyon or, or something with it and you get a nice you get a really nice response you you have reduced clipping yield you don't have to be going out there as often to to mow and it let's say you're on a sports field one of the other things we looked at because i was getting a ton of questions from people about well i've got all these coated prills out there they're fizz so go back to that idea of the ping pong ball coated with saran wrap and now run across it with a bunch of football spikes, aren't I damaging it? And the answer is no. We actually did a bunch of research where we took coated products from 45 to 180 day release, so thinner to thicker coatings, mm -hmm. and then we ran across them with all my students wearing soccer cleats, and we figured out how much traffic to be equal to three high school football games, 
And then we went out and picked up the prills. This is a hobby. Oh, boy. And looked at nitrogen release from purportedly damaged prills, and the answer was we had no differences. Yeah, so, so very durable. Very durable. Is what, is right. what you'd say. And, and we're seeing that uniformly, and then others have looked at research going through um, augers and mixing, and on the turf side, we don't see the damage. Yes, on the farm field side, we're seeing a little bit, not extreme, but you know those are things we need to work with um, big field grade equipment. Right. Um, but but I think I think your point is made. Combining them, looking at how you put these products together is the way to do it. Excellent. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So what else do we want to talk about? Okay. So we kind of have this focus on nitrogen, right? Um, but but the um, the one thing that is, is coming into the market as we get new polymers and new coatings is slow release other products. Um, slow release phosphorus, I will say for 80% of the world, it's it's not something that's going to keep me up night because phosphorus in a heavier soil is not going to leach. Okay, so what do I mean? Anything <clears throat> that's a loam or greater, so loams, clay loams, silty clay loams, your phosphorus is going to accumulate in the surface. And that's a whole nother problem, frankly, um, with runoff and movement off site. But leaching, movement of the phosphorus downward in sand soils can happen, especially if you overapply it. So if you're building 100% sand putting greens or sand based, or those of you who just manage sandy soils, or we're in Florida, or, in Florida, or the right. Carolinas, um, so I'll continually hear from folks, I can't get my pea soil test up above two, and what do I do? So there are coated phosphorus products which we've worked with that do not leach and work beautifully. There are also some newer products coming out of sewage sludge processing. Um, one is called Struvite, and there are companies now that have figured out how to cat. It's 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 basically a mineral that's formed in the processing of sewage waste. Mm-hmm. So they figured out how to capture this Struvite and process it, and offer it as a fertilizer. And it's also got a little bit of magnesium in it, if I remember right. I need to look at that label. I just got. Hang on, I'm pulling it up, guys. Um. Nope. It's, oh, yeah, 10% magnesium. 10% magnesium. So a little bit of nitrogen, about 5%, but it's mainly, it's 28% phosphorus, P205. Um, and we've worked with it, and we've done leaching work, and it is a remarkable product. For, for those that don't necessarily are familiar with Struvite, right. what would be the brand marketing name? Uh, Crystal I, Green is Crystal one. Crystal Green, okay. There's also a close cousin of one, I think it's called a Brushite. Um, and I don't know who marks that, but Crystal Green is one that has a little bit of a market share, and they've been working in this, and we've done research with the product. And it's a beautiful product. Uh, of course, the issue, as we talked about, is right now the price point's a little high. But the thing that will happen is that price point becomes not an issue when you have to show protected water quality. Yeah. When and, environmental impacts are right. of, of more uh, visibility. Right. Like I meant, I think I mentioned I've gotten some calls from people in Canada that are doing big hydro seeding installations around lakes and they have to assure water quality and so they're putting this into their hydro seed mix. Um, so we saw great reductions. Again, I'm not spending my nights worrying about phosphate leaching, but if it's a high sand soil and you have some concerns, we had highly significant reductions in pea movement using the crystal green. And establishment of the Bermuda was equal. What do we compare it to? We compared it to MAP, monomonium phosphate, and then some blends. So potentially you could, you would consider this 
struvite, crystal green as a source of slower release oh, phosphorus. Yeah. And theoretically, you could use less of the material, get a similar response. Yes. And without environmental concerns. Right. I agree with that. And and because again, um, once you if you get into a if you get into like clay soils or loamy clays. All phosphorus, by the very mechanisms of phosphorus, is slow release. It's going to get hung up on the soil and come and go. Um, some people may be aware there's actually people that sell phosphorus-solubilizing bacteria that supposedly help the pee come off. And as, but, but here's the thing that we don't think about much. Pee is a limited resource material in this planet. And in fact, it's heavily mined and processed in Florida. And you have DAP, diammonium phosphate, and MAP, monoammonium phosphate well in my lifetime there's going to be plenty but in the his in as we continue the, it, it will become a limited resource and so getting phosphorus back from human waste is going to become a very logical thing to do i want to ask you a question as it relates to soluble inputs of nitrogen versus the controlled release slow release inputs of nitrogen of mm-hmm. uh, in terms of application rates yes okay um some of these controlled release sources, they are, they release the nitrogen at, you know, weekly at low, at low rates, mm-hmm. okay? Um, and they're expected to last a period of, you know, anywhere from one to three months, right? Right. right. Relative to a soluble product that all of that nitrogen is immediately available, right? Okay. What, what do we, what are your thoughts on? Of application rates of the controlled release sources relative to the to Slowly. the soluble so- sources right. when we're trying to have extended longevity. Do we need to put more groceries on the plate in order right. to have so, that response right. over a long period of time? And so again, because we're know, often bound to that normal thought of one pound yeah, of N per thousand square. Per, right. Okay. And and I will say, um, you know, like. One of our old weed scientists who was just a great guy, he would always say, pay me now or pay me later. And so we've got tons of work where we look at like lightweight rates of soluble nitrogen for Bermuda. Well, light equals frequency. Right. So if I'm going to put out a tenth or a quarter of a pound to end, I'm doing it weekly. Right. Bermuda grass is a high end using crop. Um, yes, you can run it lean. And if you're running fairways that are 40, 50, 30 years old, you've got a lot of nitrogen in the store mm-hmm, bank. So mm-hmm. you, anything that's organic, organic nitrogen, you're going to get mineralization of release of the nitrogen. Um, so, you know, I'm, but we work a lot around that one pound N per month. It, there's a reason why we do. Agronomically and performance wise for Bermuda, it works pretty well. I'd back it way off for zoysia. Mm-hmm, We've been mm-hmm. doing a ton of work with zoysia, and the data completely supports what everyone else has said before. Um, you don't need more than two pounds in per thousand square feet per year in this part of the country with zoysia. Now you get into South Florida, I could hear, I could support some arguments for a little more, but all the work that the guys at Florida have done are supporting right around there. And in fact, you overapply it, you go get these soluble forms and overapply a homeowner that doesn't know any better, they're going to create a disease situation. And, and so you mentioned that with a soluble, theoretically, you would you would apply it more frequently, mm-hmm. right? At right. lower rates, right? To to get the desired response, right? Or you could potentially apply 
a controlled release source, which is in rate. effect doing that weekly right. type of response right. that a soluble does without the, the extra input, well, right. or the labor exactly. associated right. with and we, that. And we have research, research that shows that, again, significant reductions in clipping production when we went out half as often, but every time we did, we did more. And again, that was still a blend. There was a little bit of urea up front to provide the color and the growth. And it doesn't have to be urea, it can be a soluble source. And this is where it really gets important is on these organic sources. And we haven't really talked about that. You know, definitely want to talk yeah. about organic but, sources you know, of nitrogen. Organic is something your clientele More gonna, and more they're hit, yeah. we're beginning but to hear. But here's this. the problem with organic sources. I'm a huge fan of organic sources, but with these caveats. They're low analysis. So like rule of thumb for most organic things, like from chicken litter, it's a it's a 332 product. So it's 3% nitrogen, it's 3% phosphate, P2O5, and about 2% K2O. There's a couple big problems that happen. One, invariably, you are over applying phosphorus. So states that are walking that, watching that, you don't get to use those sources sometimes because your soil test is already too high for P2O5. And here you come with a product that has a, a lot of animal waste products are high in phosphorus. Mm -hmm. Additionally, you put them out. Now, a hot today it's going to be 92. It's going to mineralize and be rapidly available. What do I mean? Oh, there's lots of microbes in the soil that are going to go, yahoo, and they're going to mineralize it, and out is going to come nitrate and ammonia for your turf. But February, it could sit there. So the, the release of nitrogen from a organic source is really variable and it's based on the substrate the source the soil temperature the air temperature rainfall it's it's much harder to predict than a polymer coated material and that's a example. key that's a key point right there so yep. there's some potential ah, value associated absolutely. with organic the mm -hmm. inclusion of an organic but if you're looking for specifically predictable consistent and you have other things you have other right. things and the other and again this accumulation of phosphorus will be an issue. Mm -hmm. um, there are a lot of organic people that are working very hard with their products to try to figure out a way to produce lower P sources. But the fact is, you know, be it worm compost or mushroom substrate or stuff from the stockyard, it's going to be high in P. Um, there's some really beautiful soybean substrates that I've worked with that are like a 640 product, but that's still a lot of phosphorus you're adding in the system. Now, what do the organics bring that people talk about a lot? Disease resistance, disease suppression, um, microbial stimulation. But the honest truth is there's not a lot of scientific data that supports that. Right. And what does support those kind of claims is very long term. So like 10, 15, 20 years of application of organic fertilizers to Kentucky bluegrass, some work in Ohio. Yeah, organic carbon increased, uh, soil microbial biomass increased. It was beautiful. But but the work that looks at it after one year's or two year, we just don't seem to see that. We go out and we measure organic carbon and CO2 emission because if you apply these organic things, the microbes should say woohoo and get very busy. So CO2 evolution should increase. We don't often measure differences. Right. So in terms of wrap, wrapping it wrapping uh -huh. it up, the strengths of the soluble sources. You know, how should we position those in our industry? How should we utilize those? So the strengths are lower price point, easy to get, 
they're often very easy to apply. You know, you they're granular. Your staff can go out and do it. Agronomically, they're going to grow some grass. Grow some grass. So then the strengths and values of the controlled release type products, slow release, controlled release. Safer cap. for the, like, you know, just apples to apples, safe for the environment. You're, you're going to be able to talk about your environmental protection. You're working with your program. Lower labor because you're not going to have as much clipping yield. You're not going to have to go out as often. Uh, we're really getting to the point where there's a very wide range of products so you can pinpoint the release length you want for your product. So yeah. we're get, you know, highly predictable. Highly predictable. Our turf managers right. like, they want control over right. their nitrogen inputs. Right. So this is an opportunity for them to actually control and predict their weekly release, exactly. especially if they're using nutrient modeling software, which, right. which is, is available from some sources. More, right. And then true organics, you're helping the environment by recycling products a lot of the time. Um, the negative if you buy a highly prepped and processed one, is that there's often a high price point for right. low analysis. So if you calculate your cost per pound of nutrient, they can be surprisingly pricey. But there is some evidence that there might be some benefits that we have not yet wrapped our hands around because we just haven't done a good job of collecting the right data. Um, and then again, they do afford some environmental protection with re because they're slow release. It's yeah. just a basis of microbialness. And then how, how do you position the stabilized sources, their role, their function, I think you know, the, yeah, where, where, where would you put them I relative would, to those other couple I categories? I would put the stabilized sources as sort of your safety valve. They give you a couple extra weeks of protection against leaching of nitrate because the, the nitrification inhibitor keeps your material as ammonium, which means it isn't going to leach. If you have a real soil right, that has real cation soil, exchange right, capacity. Right, and it will hold on to it. Um, and then reduced loss of nitrogen to the environment. So if you are working with either urea or UAN and you're not in a foliar program, I think they afford you some agronomic protection. Excellent. Well, we look forward to your continued research work. All right. And we appreciate you've done a lot of a lot of controlled release work and you got a lot of great data. And in fact, we we have a PowerPoint that will help that will accompany this podcast. Right. And and you could observe there a, a lot of the information that we're referencing in this podcast. Mm -hmm. And we know that Dr. Gertal has got to run off to uh, another meeting, no, important I, meeting here I at the university. <laughs> and so we're going to let her go. And we appreciate all, all, she's, I'll, all I'll, she's done for us. And she's doing other work for us, some balanced approach work. She's done amino acid work for us. And we're uh, we're really excited for for all the efforts that she's she's doing with us here in our in our investigative um, stuff at Harold's. And I'll so. put my email at the bottom of the PowerPoint, so if anybody needs to get a hold of me, they'll be able to do it. Excellent. All, all right. right. Well, thanks everybody Thank for tuning much. in. Thank you, Dr. Gertal. All right. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Turf Dudes. To send Dr. Schneider and the Herald's Turf Dudes team your questions or comments, or to be featured on an upcoming episode, reach out to us at Turf Dudes on Twitter or by email to turfdudes at heralds.com. You can subscribe to us on iTunes and Google Play Music or tune in directly at www.turfdudes.com. Send us your questions to at Turf Dudes on Twitter or by email to turfdudes at heralds.com. Turf Dudes is spelled T-U-R-P-H-D-U-D-E-S.